This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zacharin, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Political Science. Today I'm speaking to Nomi Claire Lazar, professor of politics in the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa. Her book, Out of Joint, Power Crisis and the Rhetoric of Time, from Yale University Press, explores how political leaders use constructions of time to frame events. This imaginative book asks us to consider how calendars, clocks, and periodic events legitimate political orders. Nomi, thank you so much for joining us today on the New Books Network. Thank you so much for the invitation. So the first question, as standard with New Books Network, is if you could just tell us a little bit about your background and why you chose to write this book. I, by training, am a uh, political theorist, a political philosopher, and I've always had an interest in uh, crisis and and moments where things you know shift and change and how that comes about uh, and so my my first book was about states of emergency and how we manage those in liberal democracies and then i sort of had a moment where i took a sharp turn shall we say uh, into this other area which seems at first to be unrelated so it makes sense maybe to, to uh, explain how I got the idea for the book uh, and, and how it came to captivate me. Uh, so when I was a kid, I had this weird, nerdy fascination with clockworks. And I used to like to go and get old, broken down clocks from the jewelers and take them apart and try to figure out how they worked and all of this kind of thing. And uh, I had mentioned this to a cousin of mine who then presented with me with a book, uh, sort of a history of clocks and calendars uh, as a birthday present. And as I was reading it, uh, by then I, I, ha- I had my PhD in political science, I was uh, very struck by this strange phenomenon that all of the major calendar reforms had been undertaken by political leaders who were in the midst of crisis of major upheaval, regime change. Uh, and, and from a political scientist perspective, this is very strange because uh, there's so, you know, at, at those kinds of moments, there's so many draws on your resources. So if you're Julius Caesar or Kublai Khan, if you've just conquered a new territory or, uh, you know, uh, started a revolution like the French, Revolu- the French revolutionaries, why on earth does it occur to you at that moment when you've got all of these problems to reform the calendar, which seems like such a weird technical kind of exercise. And if it had just happened once or twice, you might say, okay, it was just some quirky thing with this guy or that guy. But because there is this uh, strong correlation uh, across different cultures, 
so every dynasty founding Chinese emperor, uh, uh, Julius Caesar, uh, Augustus, uh, Ataturk, Lenin, Stalin, the French revolutionaries, Pol Pot, I could go on and on and on. So at that point, when you see this happening through history across different cultures, you, you, you have to ask, your, you, know, you have to think, okay, there's something else, something deeper going on here. And what do all of these leaders have in common? They are all facing a challenge of legitimacy. So if you're putting into place something that's new, you need to convince people that they should accept it or at least tolerate it. So this then generated the puzzle for the book, which is uh, essentially, what does time have to do with legitimation? So if we start from the hypothesis that all of this tinkering with time is somehow related to the legitimation problem, then uh, how are these two things related? So that was how uh, I came to write this book on, on political temporality, which at first doesn't seem to have that much to do with states of emergency, but of course it is also dealing with these situations of uh, crisis and, and radical change. Before jumping into the sort of broader theories that you, uh, that you pull out of these examples, it's worth going over and looking at a couple of the examples that you talk about in the book. So you know, you, you talk about various different things, but I think that a lot of people in school or just in general, if they're familiar with any kind of story of a kind of a calendar change, they're familiar with the Thermidorian reaction. Uh, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the, uh, the, the French calendar reforms and then also the, uh, the Julian calendar reforms uh, and just, you know, maybe any other examples of, of these reforms to sort of give that a uh, uh, listeners an impression of what that looks like? Uh, well, those are actually two examples that go very well together. Uh, so uh, maybe I'll start with with uh, Julius Caesar. So as, as your listeners might know, uh, um, th there was a lot of corruption in Rome. And uh, one of the ways that this political corruption manifested was that uh, the the uh, calendar was uh, was variable and was a, how long the year was was a political decision. Now, how can that be? Uh, that is because if you have a sort of a lunar calendar and you want to make it match up with uh, something like a solar year, you have to add extra days because they don't line up. So, so uh, many cultures have had an intercalary month, uh, which they add at certain junctures to try to line things up again. But because Rome's political offices were a year in length. Uh, and because the person who decided how long the year was going to be, like whether there was going to be this intercalation period or not, was an elected official, you ended up with this weird situation. And it was, in fact, the Pontifex Maximus whose uh, job it was. Uh, so he, uh, where if you wanted to keep your enemies outside of Rome, for example, or you wanted to give some ally of yours extra time in their office, you could decide whether or not to make, actually make the year longer. And this had become so wildly out of control that when Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon on the 10th of January, which I always remember because it's also my birthday, um, it, was, it was January, but it was also, um, it was also autumn. Uh, so, so the year had just become totally out of whack. And this became a sort of symbol for the corruption of the Roman political system in general. And so when Julius Caesar uh, took control, uh, many of his reforms had to do with uh, uh, both substantively, but also symbolically correcting corruption, cleaning up corruption. 
so he borrows this model from the Egyptians of, a, you know, a much more rational, a much more scientific year. And in this, and by reforming the calendar in this way, sort of insinuates that he's the man whose rule is in line with reason, is in line with science, uh, as then understood, and with purity, because it was in line with these things, right? And he's restoring uh, sort of the human calendar to nature. So even nature's on his side. He is, uh, uh, you know, his rule is sort of justified and legitimated uh, because he is the man of reason, the man of nature, the man of science. All of that is on his side. So it's that's helping him legitimate his uh, his power. And so, there, you know, we see echoes of that, of course, in the French Revolutionary calendar, uh, which is so we know that the French Revolutionaries uh, changed most of our units of measurement, right? So it's not just, you know, we, we know about the calendar, but they also kind of bring into place uh, all of these decimal systems of measurement, which we retain everywhere except, you know, the U.S. and I think it's North Korea or something um, that, you know, we, we use, we use this metric system. And so what's actually interesting, and, and there again, we have this sort of uh, attempt to uh, align this shift, this political shift with what's natural, what's scientific, what's rational, but also in the French revolutionary case to socially engineer when people have leisure time. So they extend the week to uh, uh, 10 days, right? So it's a decimal week. And that kind of mixes up when there is a Sunday, which then makes it hard to go to church. So it, it sort of takes away from the power of the church and uh, kind of engineers the work-leisure balance uh, in a way that's, uh, that's quite interesting. So, so here's the thing. So you would say, okay, Julius Caesar's calendar reform sticks. Like we still use a version of that. The French Revolutionary calendar, which seems to be trying to do the same thing, is the only decimal measurement they brought into effect, which we no longer use, right? And that, so, th so that's an interesting puzzle. Why does this rationalization of the calendar work and this other one not work? Uh, and my hypothesis, which I have not proved but would like to put forward, is that Julius Caesar gave people more days off and the French revolutionaries gave people fewer days off, <laughs> um, more work less uh, rest, and that most of the calendar reforms that kind of mess around with people's leisure time and who they can socialize with tend to fail, uh, which is an interesting kind of feature. So they try to do the same type of thing, this naturalization, legitimation thing, uh, and they failed. Uh, and I want to suggest maybe for that reason, too few holidays. Yeah. Another example of that that you give in the book is uh, Joseph Stalin reforming the attempts to reform to a five-day work week for more, for greater efficiency. Um, and you point out that like part of the reason why that fails is that when there's no days off, then the machines will break and then no one will fix them. Um, and yeah, I, I, another thing that, that you, that you talk about too, uh, that you sort of examine is you look at uh, constitutional preambles and the way in which uh, constitutions, uh, these kind of like legal foundings and the ways in which the preambles will speak to this kind of historical significance of this new founding regime. So I was wondering if you could discuss the two, the two examples that, that, that you bring up are uh, the Chinese constitution in 1982, uh, and then also the Hungarian uh, constitution of 2012. So I was wondering if you could speak about those examples as well. 
Sure. So uh, I do talk a lot in the book about calendars and clocks, but there's another way that political leaders uh, harness time to legitimate or delegitimate power, and that's through conceptions of the flow of time. So if we think about you know, how we experience time, we always experience it through marks and measures, whether that's different kinds of clocks, uh, different calendars like the academic, religious, and and Gregorian calendar that we might use simultaneously, etc. So we mark time in different ways that allows us to experience time in different ways. But on top of clocks and calendars, we also use these sort of grander arcs of time. So ideas of progress and cyclicality, uh, ideas of, uh, uh, of apocalyptics or eschatology, so the notion that time will someday come to an end. Uh, we use primitivist ideas that we're looking back to this you know, harmonious Eden and comparing the corruption that we're in now to this pastime. And so these kind of narrative arcs are also very politically useful because they allow political leaders to suggest what uh, the future holds. Uh, so if you, if you think about uh, an event, a contentious event, uh, what's going to make people accept that? So in the case of constitutions, you know, a new constitution, a new way of having the government run, uh, the political leaders need to convince people that it's good for them, right? That it's a promising thing for their future, that it's going to fix something in the past and, and give them something for the future. But how do we know what the future holds, right? We can't tell the future. And it's not like a political leader is going to stand up there and make social science type arguments about probabilities and causalities and stuff like that. Uh, but instead, what many leaders do in the preambles to constitutions is they use these familiar narrative arcs, not the content. I mean, the content of the events is there, but what's really important is the shape of the story, which we tend to recognize. Uh, so, for example, uh, the, uh, um, you know, I use the, the, the example of the 1978 to the 1982 preambles in the, of Chinese constitutions. So in the 1978 uh, preamble, uh, the, the, the rhetoric is quite eschatological. So it's, very, it's still deeply, deeply uh, Marxist. And all of the rhetoric is about sort of struggle and being in the midst of this chaotic moment. And the purpose of this struggle is that soon we're going to sort of reach this, uh, this, this point of resolution, essentially. Uh, and and uh, so, so then, of course, there, there are... Uh, so, so, so in that way, the drafters of the constitution are telling the Chinese people what this constitution means for their future, what the event of the constitution means for their future. This is what we're reaching toward. This is what we're trying to achieve. Um, so between 1978 and 1982, you have this massive political upheaval in China. And suddenly, you know, Deng Xiaoping is, uh, you know, has got power and uh, you know we have the age of reform and we get this new constitution coming in just four years later where this struggle toward this moment of resolution is no longer what is being promised to the Chinese people. So instead in the preamble there, you have this much more sort of progressive narrative that, oh, we're gonna step forward together bit by bit, we're gonna move ahead, uh, it's gonna take work uh, but it's sort of this much more kind of progressive type of narrative that says to the people, you know, we're no longer in this chaos that's reaching toward this resolution, but instead now what this constitution means is we've taken this turn toward this kind of progressive uh, and uh, somewhat capitalist uh, way, way of being. So by contrast, so, you know, you, you asked about this other example, which is the Hungarian constitution. 
So uh, in, in Hungary, uh, Viktor Orban uh, with, you know, br brought this constitution in in 2012 uh, it, uh, on the basis of very little consultation. And, uh, you know, he's at that point moving Hungary, kind of starting to move Hungary away from Europe toward this idea of like principled illiberalism. And he needs to tell the people a story about why this is happening, right? And why it's good for them. And there in that preamble, he, he, he uses this narrative, which he's used since the late 1990s of a sort of a grand cyclic rise and fall. So he's, he's always comparing the year 1000 with the year 2000 and saying, you know, in the year 1000, St. Stephen founds Hungary and uh, they rise, you know, we rise to glory. We're this wonderful people. And then in the 20th century, you know, we're up at this pinnacle, all these forces from outside attack us basically and drag us down and make Hungary gray and miserable. And now he says, you know, it's always, and now we're going to, you know, refound in the year 2000, uh, the Hungarian people with its special identity and rise again toward glory. So what does this constitution mean? Which, you know, to, to political scientists, it means Orban is concentrating his power in a way that's going to be very difficult to disentrench. Um, but what he's telling the people of Hungary that it means is that thanks to me, thanks to this constitution, we're not going to let these outsiders drag us down anymore. Now we're setting out on this great, glorious rise. So, so this is this conception, you know, this grand cyclic conception of the flow of time, uh, which is constructed through picking out different events from Hungarian history, almost like you, if you think about dot paper, right? You pick from all the many events you could pick from that traces out the arc through the present moment and tells you what's going to happen next. You know, by by him sort of framing in that period of time, it makes it seem like, you know, whatever re regime he is founding is going to last for this extremely long time. And yeah, another example you, you discuss is also the Mayan calendar, which, uh, you know, I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the Mayan calendar and the significance of these periods of time that will obviously far extend, you know, the, the, the length of the regime and the political significance of that. Well, that's a really interesting question. And the Mayan calendar is, is important for several reasons. And one is that it presses against this cliched notion that other people and other times thought that time moved in circles. And now we moderns have this linear conception of time that presses against that. Because almost every culture, I would say, actually go so far as to say every culture, simultaneously uses cycles and lines. And that is certainly true of the Mayan calendar, which has these important cycles, but um, it, it's a tight token distinction. So, uh, uh, so you can say, well, time moves in circles, right? Like we go from January and back to January again, but it's not the same January because we're also moving in a line. And all human beings have this capacity to sort of differentiate between the type of movement of events and the token event. So yes, it's January again, we're going in a circle, or yes, it's noon again, and look at that modern clock face that goes round and round and round, but it's not the same noon that it was yesterday. It's another noon along this line. So, it, so it's, the Mayan calendar is important from that perspective. Uh, but you know, your, your, your question about, so what happens if you kind of set out uh, um, this narrative of you know, why your power is legitimate that has an endpoint? So this is what happens. Uh, in uh, classical uh, Copan, uh, which is an important Mayan city, 
when uh, Yash Kukmo, who's this conqueror, he arrives from the north and he takes over the city. And he says, uh, and he arrives right at the beginning of one of these important cycles in the Mayan calendar. And he basically, in all of his propaganda, uh, ties the legitimacy of his power to the fact that he arrived just at this very special moment. So it's, it's almost like it's, it's, it's destined. And he says, and my power will last through this whole cycle, right? It's a cycle of 400 years in this case. Uh, and, so, and, and his descendants then are continually tying their power, the legitimacy of their power, um, directly to their connection to Yash Kukmod, the original guy, not to their father, for example, and to his claim that his power would last for this whole 400 years. But here's the problem, right? What happens when you get to year 380? Um, and, and it's striking that Copan lasted, its power lasted for almost exactly 400 years. Uh, so, and, and then of course there's, the, you know, that could be a coincidence or it could be that, uh, uh, that, you know, the other things that are going on, soil degradation, so there's hunger and starvation, there's a challenge from a nearby city, et cetera, that these things are interacting with people, you know, the, the, the fact that the ideology that's been sustaining uh, the uh, power is, is, is starting to crumble as well. So that could, could potentially also be a factor. But of course, you know, we don't, we don't know because we only have documentation. So we have archaeology, but we only have we only have documentation from the ruler's perspective, not from the people's perspective. But we do know that people started to leave Copan in uh, vast numbers around that time, leading to its uh, virtual collapse almost exactly 400 years uh, later. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. In your book, another uh, sort of example that you talk about and is sort of the, the central, I think uh, it would be fair to say the central sort of case study is uh, the Mongol emperor Kublai Khan. Uh, so I was wondering if you could talk about Kublai Khan's calendar. Sure. Uh, it occurs to me I should also point out, okay, so if you do set out this sort of kind of grand cyclic uh, thing and say, oh, my power is going to last through the cycle or something like that, uh, or my power is going to uh, 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 gonna or the, uh, sort of reliant on glory of some, of some kind, uh, this does present a challenge for most regimes. Uh, that that you know that power does seem to diminish, and that I argue in the book, just in case anyone finds this interesting, that this is one of the reasons why countries have national holidays, because you know Machiavelli sort of calls this resuming the government, right, reminding people of the government's power. So you stick it in the calendar, and then nobody has to do the actual reminding because the calendar just brings it automatically every year. This rehearsal of the fundamental, you know, the foundational values of the society. So national holidays are a very devious, effective time technology for legitimating power. But that aside, okay, so, so Kublai Khan, such an interesting guy. Anyone who has not read about Kublai Khan, I recommend uh, not just that you read my book, but that you go out and read whatever you can find. This is truly a fascinating uh, political case study. So Kublai is uh, evidently a uh, 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 Mongol. 
uh, he arrives in China and manages to kind of unify the country. But he's not Han. He's an outsider. So he, de he, he uh, declares himself to be uh, an emperor and founds the new, a new dynasty, the Yuan dynasty. Uh, and then he's got this big problem where he needs to convince Chinese people that he has uh, legitimate power to be an emperor, essentially. And so one of the things he does is he undertakes this vast and super expensive uh, and super amazing from a history of science and technology perspective, reform of the Chinese calendar. And he does this for several reasons. Uh, the first is that every dynasty founding Chinese emperor reforms the calendar, but most of them do it in this kind of, uh, you know, uh, tinkery sort of way. So Kublai, he's got this extra legitimacy challenge. So he's like, oh, I'm going to go, you know, whole hog on this and do this, you know, and be really impressive at it. So if we, you know, if you think about it, like if we know that this is the doctor because she's wearing the lab coat with the stethoscope and she has a certain bearing, right? So this person acts like she's the doctor. So we, that signals to us that she's the doctor. So Kublai acts as though he's the emperor. He does the things that emperors do in order to signal uh, that he has, uh, that he is in fact a legitimate emperor. And one of the things that emperors do is they reform the calendar. But there are several other, and he does it better, right? He does it better than anyone else, which then also shows that he has all of this power and capacity to rule uh, because he spends so much money and he's able to draw these scholars from all over the world with this expertise in, in uh, uh, you know, astronomical instruments and things. So he makes this sort of display of his wealth and his power. So that's also another signal of legitimacy that he has the capacity to uh, uh, kind of engineer this kind of thing. Uh, but in addition, the reason why emperors are always reforming the calendar is that uh, in, in a lot of cultures, it's not just what you do that makes, uh, uh, like with respect to religion, for example, that makes you pious, but when you do it. So it's not just that you go to mass, but that you go to mass, you know, at or to particular masses at particular times. It's not just that you go to synagogue or to mosque, but that you do it at the right time to mark a holiday, for example. And similarly, a lot of ancient cultures like the Assyrians and the Chinese have this uh, notion, uh, this important notion that it's not just what you do, but that you do it at the right time. And the only way that you can know that the timing is right is by having an accurate calendar uh, and an almanac that goes along with it. And this is why um, so, so this is like an important aspect of infrastructure, you could say, that the emperor uh, needs to uh, provide to people. Uh, and in doing so, uh, the hope is that everything will go well, that crops will grow nicely, there'll be plenty of food, there'll be security. And that in itself in um, Chinese political thought becomes a symbol uh, or a sort of a signifier that the emperor is legitimate. So when things are going well for the people, that shows the emperor is legitimate. When things start to go badly, that suggests that uh, that the emperor has lost the favor of heaven. Um, uh, so, so, so for all these reasons, Kublai sort of faces his massive legitimation challenge as an outsider, as a Mongol who is uh, now ruling China uh, 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 through this calendar reform. It achieves legitimacy on so many different levels. Something I found interesting is this kind of framing that you that you say that like. 
these calendar reforms are extremely radical acts. However, the act itself is one that positions a new regime or a new political order in some larger history. So it actually, you know, even though it's it's forward looking and it's this new thing, it actually references the past. Um, so, you know, you, you sort of talk about this idea that, you know, one way of counteracting or undoing order is this thing that you call primitivism. So what, what is, uh, you know, what, what is primitivism in your mind and what is its relationship with this politics of legitimation? So, okay. So, so, so if you think about it, uh, you know, politics is chaos, right? Uh, things are always changing. Everything's dynamic. Nothing's ever really fair. Uh, it, it's sort of, you know, if you take a step back, politics is a bit like somebody threw all the plates on the floor and everything got smashed, but everyone's kind of going along with things, pretending that didn't just happen, right? They're pretending that things aren't chaotic and awful, that the world is not full of domination and uh, misery and uh, unfreedom. Um, so uh, most politics kind of takes place in that space of dynamism. Uh, and either we just have this sort of level of tolerance for it, or we have ideologies that make us, that sort of trick us into thinking that, uh, that things actually are, you know, maybe not perfectly just, but they're more or less okay, right? But there are some people who just cannot take it. They can't stand it. They say, this is not real, right? What's real is that there's domination and suffering and misery, uh, that there's chaos and injustice and nothing, you know, things look like they're well-ordered, but they're not. Uh, and, and it's just not tolerable. You can't fix it. You can't reform it. You just have to smash it, basically. It has to, you have to sweep it away. Um, and so, and, and, and essentially, the people who look at the world that way want things to stop, right? They don't want movement. They don't want chaos. They want order, a just order that's self-ordering, where you don't need domination to maintain it. They want quiet. And they want things to be sort of in this natural harmony that, you know, doesn't, doesn't uh, uh, require maintenance. And that means they want time to stop. So people who work to undermine legitimacy, you often use one of two conceptions of the flow of time that are related to uh, the end points of time, either before time started or after time's going to end. And the before time started people I call primitivists who sort of hearken back to this period when people lived close to nature. And so everything was sort of idyllic uh, and, uh, and, and they, they describe these sort of idols as a way of pointing out how corrupt and miserable and awful our current built space, ordered space is. Okay. And so that's a good, that's a good critique. That's a good lament. It's, it, it makes us suitably depressed when we sort of compare it to this, you know, before time, before the earth started spinning in Eden, you know, before time starts, before there are events, before there's change. But if you really want to get, you know, clean up the mess, you could say, you have to stop the earth from spinning. So uh, there, there's sort of this initial inertial force, right, that starts events, politics, the world spinning, and takes us out of this wonderful idyllic pre-time, right? And now you need an equal but opposite force that's going to stop the world from spinning. It's going to stop time and bring us into this space of peacefulness again. Uh, 
And uh, so that that's a, those are sort of eschatological or apocalyptic uh, ways of uh, or sort of conceptions of the flow of time that we find in Marx various kinds of Marxism, and that we find in various religious movements as well, of course, right? So that there will come a time when there's a final battle between good and evil, however those are conceived, and that uh, ultimately good will triumph. And then we're going to move into this other space where we don't need domination anymore, where the world is self-ordering and everything is just and, we, there's, and, and we're, we're peaceful and nothing happens anymore, right? Uh, heaven is a place where nothing happens, as the talking heads once aptly said. It, it reminds me of uh, this uh, saying that William F. Buckley would say a lot about that. Uh, trying to stop the the imminent imminentization of the eschaton uh and this sort of uh standing athwart history and yelling yelling stop um and i find it very interesting how you you kind of show this uh uh sort of similarity that these ways of thinking about time in a political context don't necessarily neatly divide along standard political lines and boundaries but you know have there's something sort of a sort of deeper underlying it. Um, you know, so, something I, I think, uh, just a general sort of question, and, you know, you could take this in whichever direction uh, you'd like, but, you know, what, what, what was some, some of your, you know, understanding of some of the other literature or other uh, theorists' discussions of politics and time uh, and some things that you think certain thinkers have gotten right and wrong and uh, your sort of intervention, because this is really, I, I think, a subject that prior to reading your book, I had not really encountered very much. Uh, so, well, you know, before I get into that, it might be worth pointing out. So, so you say, you know, you said that it's interesting to think that there might be something deeper than the actual, you know, the surface ideology going on here. And this is yeah, actually right. one of the things that I'm writing about right now in terms of apocalyptic politics uh, that. Uh, that, you know, it's long been a puzzle why people um, move sometimes, you know, bizarrely between, you know, being fascist and being Marxist, for example, uh, through, so among different kinds of extremism. So, so how can that be, right? Like, how can you be ready to kill or die for one thing and then for its opposite? And so one of the things that, that, uh, that I'm investigating is the notion that it's, that the ideology, the sort of the substance is not what's important. It's the frame. It's the apocalyptic frame. It's this need to stop time, basically, to restore order. Uh, that might be the real draw. Uh, and that, uh, you know, if that bears out in my research, then that, you know, could be an interesting sort of insight into why people are attracted to various kinds of extreme politics. Uh, and, and, you know, might pose questions for like how we might talk to people differently in, in attempts to sort of de-radicalize and things like that. Um, in terms of the kind of more general scholarship on politics and, and temporality, uh, it's, there's, a, there's kind of an explosion of it right now, but not that much uh, scholarship uh, prior to, uh, you know, maybe three or four years ago. So until reasonably recently, there wasn't that much uh, political theory, at least, on the subject of uh, time and politics. 
But there, 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 there had been some interest uh, from the historian of political thought, uh, J.G.A. Pocock, and then more recently, uh, the uh, Stanford political theorist, uh, Alison McQueen, uh, both of whom were looking at the, the role of eschatology in, uh, uh, in political thought. So uh, uh, Pocock, for example, argues that we can't really understand Hobbes uh, if we don't read the last two books of the Leviathan, which nobody ever does. Like so few people read the last two books that when that my copy, when I bought it uh, in the late 90s, it, it's a, dated from 1909 and the pages had never been cut. So how many libraries had this book sat in uh, and no one had ever read the second half? But the second half is all about apocalypse, right? It's all about religion and apocalypse. And the argument is that, uh, um, that, that a lot of politics takes place as a result of these sort of apocalyptic uprisings, right? Uh, and that, unsurprisingly, a lot of theorists develop their political thought as a response to that. So McQueen argues that this modulates Machiavelli's thinking quite a lot, as well as Hobbes' thinking. Uh, so there's sort of that thread in, 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 um, uh, in, in the study of politics and time. And right now there's a big movement of scholars working in international relations and uh, time. So Kimberly Hutchings and uh, uh, Andy Holm, who, who are interested in the ways that, the, the way, you know, in, the, in timing, right? So how, how, how does, uh, how we conceive of this moment impact uh, how we understand what's happening on the global political uh, uh, scale? You said you were talking a little bit about just to, the first part of uh, your answer to that question, just about this uh, apocalyptic, this this kind of relationship between apocalyptic politics and this, you know, how could someone move from being a Marxist to a fascist, or how could someone move across these boundaries? Um, you know, I I think that a lot of the a person, at least, I'm wondering if you have looked at is like Steve Bannon and his kind of uh, you know apocalyptic. Christian ideology and the way in which, uh, you know, Bannon has said this before that, um, that, you know, one of his biggest political influences is Vladimir Lenin. And on the face of it, if someone, nobody knows anything about that, you know, without this frame, that doesn't make any sense. But, you know, obviously to you, that probably makes perfect sense. Um, uh, you know, you, you mentioned a little bit about some of the, the new things you're working on. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about you know, your current interest and in research and how you are continuing this examination? Um, so, certainly. So uh, what, one thing that's, that's interesting, you know, that jumped out at me uh, from, from what you just said is uh, the importance of distinguishing between uh, rhetoric and ideology. So, uh, you know, right now I'm working on this project of, about how apocalyptic actually works. Uh, so a sort of a political theory of, of apocalyptics particularly as it relates to you know, extremist movements, but how it also fails to work. So if you think about climate rhetoric, that's very inflected by apocalyptic, right? So if you think about apocalyptic art and film and novels and things, they often feature climate disaster. Um, and conversely, climate activists often speak in these totally apocalyptic terms. But it might be. So in the, in, in the book, I, I, I make it sound like, oh, you know, political leaders can use these frames because we're all familiar with them from our just biology, right? 
that our lives move in lines, but you know, our experiences also move in cycles with the seasons. And also we know that eventually we're going to die. So there's always this sort of eschatological element, but we know we can sort of map our lives onto grander cycles and all of this kind of thing. Um, and so I sort of argued like we're very susceptible to all these different conceptions of the flow of time, but that is not true of apocalyptic, which tends to appeal to a subset of people incredibly powerfully uh, so that they're willing to do all kinds of crazy things but almost never appeals to the mass of people, suggesting that its use, so the use of apocalyptic framing in, the cl in climate activism uh, might be seriously counterproductive and actually turn people off on the one hand. And on the other hand, uh, that we should be paying attention to the ways, you know, if, so because it makes people act in these extreme ways, right? We should, our ears should be attuned whenever we hear this kind of apocalyptic rhetoric but we should be careful not to conflate it with ideology. So you talk about Steve Bannon, right? Uh, but another place where we're, you know, and then of course there's QAnon, right? Which is completely this apocalyptic type of frame. But we're also seeing a ton of apocalyptic rhetoric coming out of Russia right now during the Ukraine war, right? So, so there's all kinds of apocalyptic talk in the Russian media, in Russian propaganda. And this has led some people in the Western media to point to certain Russian thinkers like Dugin and say, oh, you know, uh, Putin, you know, he's the brain of Putin and this, the, you know, Putin is an apocalyptic guy and we're all headed for nuclear destruction. But, but leaders, I shouldn't laugh, uh, but uh, uh, leaders use rhetoric that is useful to them to legitimate something they want to do at a particular time. And they know they have to reach several different audiences. And so we should expect not that apocalyptic forms like a stable, continuous kind of rhetoric, like we would if it were really an ideology, but instead that it would be modulated, that it would be sort of trotted out at particular moments for particular purposes, and then kind of put away. Um, and, uh, that it can, it's useful for mobilizing people but you don't want people to be mobilized all the time. You want them sometimes to be quiet and do what they're told. And this is why uh, in, in uh, you know, if you think about you know, the early Christian church, uh, once it's established also as the official religion, uh, it's not that the, the apocalypse goes away, but people are told, you know, don't speculate when it's coming. So you push it off into the future, right? The Mormons did the same thing once they became established as a political entity. And we would expect to see that as a hypothesis. This is what I'm sort of testing, you know, looking at right now. Uh, we would expect to see that kind of temporal modulation of the use of apocalyptic rhetoric, right, uh, in extreme movements as well. So at the moment where you want to get people up and moving uh, to mobilize them for violence or to kind of get them uh, to kind of congeal around a certain movement or something like this, you're going to trot that out and then you're going to put it away because it's so dangerous or you're going to sort of modulate the timing of apocalypse like, oh, that's way in the future. Um, uh, and that's only ever going to appeal to us or the imminent right apocalypse is only ever going to appeal to a subset of people. So that's what I'm working on right now. Like how does apocalyptic, how and why does apocalyptic rhetoric work and when doesn't it work and why doesn't it work? Yeah, that sounds like a really interesting project and look forward to, to seeing where you go with that. Uh, I think, you know, some, this book has, has been out for a couple of years now, 
And I was wondering if there is anything that you wrote in it that you feel has sort of been, you know, either confirmed or something, you know, anything that you wrote where you feel like maybe your your views have shifted. Uh, so certainly my my views have shifted around. Like, I think that my understanding of apocalyptic uh, has changed, that I um, that I was not when I was writing the book, taking into account how different it is from these other forms of uh, rhetoric. Um, other than that, uh, you know, once you start paying attention, and I would encourage your listeners to pay attention, uh, it's, it's just confirmed and confirmed over and over again that at these pivotal moments, uh, political leaders trot out time talk. So whether they're reforming a calendar or, or kind of introducing an innovation or explaining what a moment means, almost guaranteed uh, important speeches will contain this kind of temporal rhetorical framing uh, that tells you what the present moment means uh, for your future. And so I would just you know, encourage your listeners to, to be attuned to that because it is a sort of manipulative form of rhetoric uh, and a particularly effective one. Uh, so we should, we should just be conscious of that as democratic citizens. Well, Nomi, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. It was great speaking with you and look forward to having you on again in the future. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed our discussion.